And people go, well, shells can be very expensive to produce up front. And I'm going, they're a fraction of the price versus paying lawyers you know, to litigate or down the line. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's a very, very mm. cheap investment up front versus the cost of dealing with the pain of, of bad partners or, or disgruntled partners in many years to come. Welcome to The Pinch, where we share real stories of businesses navigating the ever-changing legal environment and learn how you can leverage the law to avoid landing up in a legal pinch of your own. Because when it comes to the law and business, you don't know you're in a pinch until it's too late. Welcome back to The Pinch with Lucy and Natalie from Concilium. Today we're going to be talking to you about shareholders' agreements and the importance of having one and not having the wrong one. We're also going to touch briefly on memorandums of incorporation, known as MOIs, and how these dovetail with the shareholders' agreement that everyone needs to have. We're calling this episode Agreeing to Disagree, and we have a guest with us today, Spilly, a phenomenal business coach, well-known in all creative circles, and aka Brent Spilkin for anyone that didn't know. I think it's the other way around. It's Brent Spilkin, aka Spilly. But that's a great intro. Thank you for having me on your show. So we see a lot of disasters in this area. What, what is it that you are experiencing with people generally just fucking it up? So I think that one of the biggest problems that I see is often not, not only so much in the, the early stages, the beginning stages, but even like later on when there's a sale agreement or we're selling shares or we're acquiring new businesses, that the shareholding agreements aren't in place. And uh, ultimately it often comes down to the, the valuation of the businesses. And uh, as I think we talked about before is that, you know, getting into business with someone is kind of like a dating process. You, you meet someone you like who has value, you date them for a bit, um, in the real world, you date someone, you probably move in together or you get engaged, you live together for a while and then you get married. Um, you don't have that luxury in business. You don't have the time to get to know these people. So you generally go from mm. very one or two really good dates straight into you know, getting married. Mm. And um, in marriage, you would ideally like to have some kind of a, an ANC in place, which is the protective agreement between the two partners that hopefully you sign, you put in the safe somewhere and never have to use it. Um, but worst case scenario is with everything else is that one day when you do need to bring it out, what are the, the clauses in that agreement and, and how, how do you protect each other in those scenarios? And to make sure that if you're going to break up, what is the, the smoothest, easiest way to do it rather than having to then go through a, a horrible legal battle and fight about it at a later stage? Sure. So you're seeing it mostly on the end where people are in a position where they're selling or exiting um, their businesses. Um, well, my work wife, who's been incredibly silent, Lucy, is going to join us now and she's going to chat to us a little bit more about an exit strategy and exit clauses that we use frequently. Okay, so I think that's one important thing of a shareholders agreement is the exit strategy and the exit clauses. But equally as important as if you're not exiting or not um, terminating the relationship is just agreeing on whose roles and responsibilities are whose and how you actually manage this um, this business to the benefit of both of you as well as the entity itself. So I think that, that, that that's a thing that I see as well quite a lot. And often what happens is that one of the partners, and I'll use an example of this, two, two partners and maybe they're even equal shareholders, invariably at different stages of the business, one of the partners is going to be working harder or adding more value. And often there's resentment between the partners going, you know, what well, I'm working my ass off, adding value to the business where right now you're not, but you're seeing all the, the same benefit I am. Um, 
And it comes down to two parts. Firstly, when we're declaring dividends, how does that work? Who gets the money? And as shareholders, you're obviously entitled to your percentage. But more often than not, in terms of the, the roles and responsibilities and salary expectations, that's where resentment comes along. Is that, well, I'm working harder than you, and yet you're taking the same salary. And those sort of discussions should be addressed up front in terms of, you know, are salaries marked related? Are they marked related plus a percentage? Um, at what point do we review salaries? How does one get an increase without asking the other partner? Or are there caps on salaries? All of that should be, you know, uh, encompassed in the in the agreement up front. And ideally, as we talk about dating, is that while we're dating, it's all romantic and all exciting and we love each other, that's when you should agree to have these hard conversations, not after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. If it's after the fact, already there's animosity and it's very difficult to reach agreement. Um, specifically, another issue that, that we see a lot is um, with, with small businesses or businesses where um, they haven't put a lot of emphasis on legal governing documents, don't have a shareholders agreement, and just have the standard uh, memorandum of incorporation that they got when they registered their company at CIPC. The, the glaring problem with that document and without having a shareholders agreement is that document in its standard form, the MOI, doesn't allow for a right of first refusal on sale of shares. So if you have a couple of shareholders and one party decides, you know what, I, I want out of this mess, he or she doesn't actually have an obligation to offer the, the shares that he or she holds to the remaining shareholders. He can sell it to whoever he likes, unless you've changed the position that's the standard in the MOI or got a shareholders agreement that deals with it differently. And I think that's, that's a massive problem. You can end up, you can end up having... Um, a shareholder or a shareholder selling shares to somebody that you don't want to be in business with um, and have little say about it. Well, I think the other thing as well you touched on there is, is that just the clarification between MOI, a shells agreement, and an MOU. Um, and often, I, you know, I'll speak to clients, and one of the very first questions I have in any of my engagements is, do you have a shareholding agreement if you have a shareholder? And they will say, well, we've got, you know, we registered at CRPC. And I'm like, that isn't a shareholders agreement. That's just your registration of, of, of incorporation, basically. And they, don't, and they go, well, we've got an MOU and often not even signed. And even that should be, you know, the MOU should be a document that's used during the negotiation of a shareholders agreement. Just, you know, the rough understanding. It's not a legal document that's going to stand up in court. And it's not good enough to build a business off. So even having an MOU is not enough. It's, I say, it's the foundation before the shareholders agreement that you would give two lawyers like yourselves to go, this is the, the headlines of what we want, can you make this a formal agreement? Absolutely. And then when, you, when you're making it a formal agreement, you have to dovetail it with the MOI that, that is sitting at, at CRPC. And I think something that's very important that people just don't want to think about or, or just don't consider is um, what, what's going to happen in the event of a forced sale. Like, for instance, um, one of the parties passes away or becomes incapacitated and can no longer perform the functions. You don't necessarily want the shares that that shareholder is holding to be passed on to that shareholder's family and possibly that, that shareholder's wife or husband then joining the business as a shareholder. You want those shares to, to revert back to the company on a day immediately preceding the actual event so that there's no um, unforeseen or unwanted shareholders joining the business because of a horrible event. So we're talking about buying share clauses. In your opinion, I mean, is it better to have a separate buy and sell agreement or should you build that into the shareholders agreement? It's Our opinion is that you should build it into the shareholders agreement because otherwise it becomes too many documents, governing documents around the shareholders and, and their obligations and rights to one another and to the business. And I just think to have one document that encompasses everything is is the safest place and making sure that it dovetails with, with the MOI. Okay, so in my opinion, the buy and sell clauses are often often the most triggered clauses in terms of what the agreement stands for. Uh, generally, that's what it comes down to. 
And what I have seen in the past is that people will then get standard documents either from a, from a, a low-grade paying sort of lawyer or rip it off the internet and build their own. And the, one of the pieces which I find always seems to be lacking is the, the valuation methodology of how we value the business and not what the value is today, but in which way are we going to value the business. And I think what's, what I've seen in, you know, in terms of sort of case study is twofold, is that most agreements would sort of say, well, in case of you know, a, a disagreement, a mediation should occur in the following manner, and it's engage with a lawyer of tenure standing that's independent or an accountant. And then what happens is the partners end up fighting about which accountant we're going to use and which lawyers, not even the problem at hand, just let's fight about who's the objective party. Then we get hold of an accountant who's got 15 different ways of valuing the business, and then we're fighting about which way, which methodology suits us, and which ones are we blending or are we taking an average. So we end up fighting about stuff that's actually not the problem here. So my, my recommendation is always get the agreement to stipulate the way in which we're going to value shares. Obviously, we want to get that done by an accountant. But if we clear in on this is the way we like today and this is how we're going to do it internally between the shareholders, it takes away a lot of the pain in terms of what the right price is. And then I think there's it's the is it the the the, the Texas um, what's what's the clause? There's a a, a Texas oh, shootout clause. I think there's a word for it, yes. where basically you, you know if if I think the shares are worth ten rand and you think they're worth eleven, um, and I'm prepared to sell them, buy them eleven, you're then forced to buy my shares at, at the lower price. There's, there's a particular clause that maybe you know the, the legal word for that. Okay, yes, yeah, we call that the Mexican standoff or Texas Chainsaw Massacre clause. <laughs> Um, and basically what that clause deals with is in a situation where you absolutely cannot agree, um, one of you has to sell the shares and it's, it's going to end up being at, at the lower price, provided that there's, there's a base calculation there. So it's not going to be a ridiculously low price. Um, you, you have a base calculation. And as you said, Spilly, it's so, so important to upfront decide what kind of calculation you're going to use. Mm. To, to value the business and value the, the shares on a on a like a happy sale or a voluntary sale because it also may be different to the valuation you want to give to the business or the shares on a forced sale. For instance, if one of the partners is found guilty of theft or fraud, you may not want to use that particular calculation sure. to pay out on the shares when the, when that shareholder is actually existing because of theft yeah, or, that's a valid or fraud. Point. Uh, going back to the buy and sell, so often what happens, what you should be having is, is life insurance on each other's lives in case of worst-case scenario. Um, and there's two parts I want to just t- touch on here. The first thing is that often what happens is that the partners have the business paying for the insurance piece. Um, and then writing off as a loan against their names. Now, I want to understand is that I've had one or two cases of, of late where that's actually a problem in terms of tax because the insurance has to be taken out in your personal capacity, which means you got to take the money out the business and then pay the policy, not let the business pay. I mean, is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. You have to, you have to pay it in your personal capacity because generally what's happening is the insurance is paying out to you mm. in your, or to the other party in, in, in your personal capacity. It's not paying to the business. Yes, you are going to use it to purchase shares, but it, it cannot be paid for by, by the business and it is a big tax, tax issue if it is structured that way. And, and how often should we be re-looking at this in, in terms of the value of that insurance policy? I mean, is it, is it an annual thing? Is yes. it more than that? No, annually you should. Look, I mean, if the business is growing exponentially um, on a month-to-month or quarter-to-quarter basis, then you should be looking at it more regularly, but at an absolute minimum annually. Mm. And, and possibly when there's new shareholders that come in, obviously. No, yeah. absolutely. If there's any new additions to the business, you would have to look okay, at that nice. and take out um, insurance. Okay. Uh, just a just quick question. So in terms of, of wanting to exit a business, so 
best advice is to make sure that, that my partner has the first rights of refusal at a set valuation. I can then go to the market and if, if my partner is refusing to buy at that price and sell it. Yes. But the reality here is that during that process, I mean, again, a, a recent discussion with one of my clients is that the other partner who's not a willing buyer is not, a willing, is not allowing his partner with ease to sell the shares. Because what's happening is that for argument's sake, you know, I want to sell my shares and you don't want to let me sell my shares. And I, and I go to your partner and say, please, I want to sell my shares. And she's keen, but she's getting into bed with you now. Okay? You're the new partner. And you just aren't playing ball. You don't want to meet. You don't want to have discussions. You're not forthcoming with information or, or documentation. So therefore, you're putting off any potential buyer in buying my shares. Are there any legalities in, in stopping that happening? Yeah. So what we what we like to deal with around that is um, that if if the offer of the sale of shares to this external third party is exactly the same to me but not better, then I can be forced to attend meetings and sign off. And if I don't, we add in a a specific clause that gives you the power to sign documents on my behalf and deal with the, the addition of this new shareholder on my behalf. It is going to be an issue. I mean, you can't you can't contract a person's personality if they if they're being obstructive mm. um, and not being willing to an, uh, to a third party joining. It is going to be an issue. But you, legally, what all we can do and what we do protect in the agreement is to make sure that you've got the right to sign documents on my behalf if the offer is the same as you offered me or or worse. Okay, and then I mean, so so in terms of shareholder agreement. You, are you suggesting that these things are done at the moment of incorporation, prior to registering a business, Absolutely. or at the same time? Yeah, so it's not a catastrophe if you've if you've started a business and you're already operating and you don't have these documents in place. You can you can still put it in place, but don't delay. Okay, so one more thing as well in terms of, of selling shares to other parties or selling the majority of the business to another party are the, the tag-along and drag-along or come-along clauses. Um, and a lot of my clients aren't clear on, on the difference between tag and drag and what the difference is. And then there's often the discussion around what is the right percentage uh, in terms of what the trigger is in order to, to tag and drag. Why are you smiling so much? No, I can't say. Confidentiality. So, yes, that's a, very, that's a very important question and it's, it's something that we often um, really struggle with clients to, to find the right percentage because basically the difference is this. A tag along is where um, a majority shareholder or shareholders that are holding a majority get an offer for more than 50% of the business or more than 50% of their shares. And if it's a majority shareholder, I may not want to stay in a business if that majority shareholder is leaving. So the tag-along clause allows me to say, okay, so if the offer is for more than 50% of your shares or more than 50% of the, the, biz, the shareholding in the business, I am allowed to tag onto that deal. And the prospective purchaser must offer the same deal to me. So you won't be able to sell 50% or more than 50% of your shares. It is then the the number of shares that are being purchased, say it's 60%, is then divided amongst all the shareholders. So everybody sells a portion of their shares. Okay, so but that percentage, is, that's up for discussion, right? Doesn't up have to for be 50%. discussion. It doesn't have to be 50%. So but as an example here, so if there are two partners that are each 50% shareholders and the one wants to sell his shares ultimately it comes down to the shareholder agreement, but in terms of the, there is no tag clause necessarily because there is no then majority. 
Ever. Yeah. Exactly. What you could say is if you want to sell all your shares to a particular third party that I disagree with, for instance, then that third party must actually buy 100%, 100% of, the, of, the 100% of the business. And if, if that third party doesn't want to, then we must dissolve the business. And then just uh, the other thing I'll ask you, just in terms of the purpose of, of starting a business and the shareholders agreement, how much context do you put into the shareholders agreement in terms of what the purpose of the business is? You know, I have guys starting businesses, clients of mine, who are going, it's our intention to sell this business in six years. And they want to put that into the agreement because they want to make sure that, that they're aligned in terms of their vision almost in the business. Now, it's not necessarily a legal clause that they can actually hold each other accountable to, but it's about understanding what is the purpose of this business, what is the purpose, how is it going to you know, serve the shareholders? Is that something you would, you would generally put into that, or is that a separate separate? outside of legal sort of discussion. Put it in. I, I would definitely put it in. And it is something you could actually hold each other to. So if you agreed up front in the shareholders agreement, I mean, it's a binding document. So if our agreement is in six years' time, we are selling this business to a third party provided we get at least our the valuation as per this calculation that we've agreed upon. And then that in, in six years' time, if we get an offer that meets the, the valuation criteria, then we have to sell. Okay. Um, we could always amend that agreement or we could agree not to do it in six years' time. But if that is the intention up front, it's a good idea to have it in there because okay. people do change their minds. So you can actually almost add anything that you, you want in there as long as both parties or all the parties and agree to it. And as long as it's not illegal. Against public policy or okay. contra bonus mores or illegal, yeah. Faith. Don't speak Latin. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, so as long as it's a legal clause and both parties are agreeing on it, you can okay. you can basically have anything in the end you should. Okay. Anything that's worrying you or cons- that you consider as important in this relationship, it should be in there. So now I want to ask some 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 free legal advice. I have clients where they, I think it's 60, 40%, not, not too concerned about the shareholding, but the one party is actively involved in the business and draws a salary. The other one is 100% silent shareholder. So, and that's been since day one, not a problem. But now the silent shareholder is demanding information from the other party. There is no board in place because it's a privately small, smallish sort of business, but the shareholder is kind of going, well, I want access to information like the finances, I want to know what the, what the pipeline looks like. Now, that none of that has been put in place in terms of a shareholders agreement because, again, up front, we love each other, we're clear you're a silent shareholder, means that you're not active. But now it's kind of going, well, I'm not active, but I still have rights as a shareholder. What are the standard rights you'd put into a document up front like that in that particular case? Well, in terms of the Companies Act, um, you know, a shareholder director's have got the right to information. They can look at. They can call for the the audited financials. They can call for the financials even if they aren't audited. They can't ask for things like pipelines and budget plans and things like that unless it's been agreed upon. Because that's not a, it's not an obligation, um, in running your business that you have those kind of things and plans and budgets in place. So the only thing the shareholder could demand is access to information being the financials, any contracts that are in place um, to get an idea of how the business is being run because obviously the shareholder has got a right to to know whether anything's being squandered or the financials are actually correctly reflecting what they're supposed to reflect. Would you try and set up some sort of board structure around that? Yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, ideally then, you know, once a year they'd in theory, sort of be an AGM of some sort or even more regularly than that, where at that point we can ask these questions but not interrupt the business on a as and when I feel need to sort of basis. Absolutely. What well, are you since say? there's no reporting function because there's no board, then, I mean, the shareholder can't be prejudiced by not having, not being reported to in some way. So, and there is a function for 
annual meetings and there need to be shareholders meetings and directors meetings in a normal normal company structure. But just because this company would have less, um, there's just an investor and one director running the show, there should still be a reporting function put in place and agreed to. And again, that would come to it being agreed up front so everybody knew their roles and responsibilities from from the outset. And yeah. An appointment of directors... Is, is that a sh- in the shareholders' agreement as well to say, well, you yes. can be a shareholder without a director? And yes. It's just stipulated there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, I mean, every shareholder under the company's act has got the right to be represented at a board level. They can either appoint themselves as a non-executive director or executive director, or they can appoint some other person working in the business to act in their as their representative on the board. Look, the direct, a board of directors has legal obligations under the Companies Act, and they can be a director can be prosecuted... Um, can be put in jail, can be fined. Um, There's quite serious consequences for um, not behaving in the best interests of the business or trading recklessly. Um, And a director can't avoid his or her obligation to report to a shareholder on certain things, one being the financials of the business. The, the, The thing that's often up for discussion is the level of reporting, and I think this is obviously the issue in this particular business, is the level of reporting. The silent shareholder wants deeper reporting or more information that wasn't agreed to up front. And that's where it's a clear example of having a shareholder's agreement in place where you've agreed what sort of reporting or what sort of visibility the shareholder wants is is decided up front and then acted upon. Okay, so you, you, uh, you said earlier on, Natalie, that, that shareholder agreements can be obviously reviewed as and when need. You know, if both parties agree, we can redraft whatever we want. So but the first thing is, has there been any fundamental law change like in the country that's forcing a lot of people to relook at their shareholders' agreements, number one? And number two, is it a clause you'd put in the agreement to go, we would review this agreement every year because I might change my mind? Yeah, so, so you could absolutely, absolutely do that. I suppose you could also, if you really wanted to, put in an agreement that you weren't, you're not able to vary it in the future um, because it's an agreement between the parties and you can agree to anything, like we, like we said. In terms of changes to the law, um, there hasn't been any significant changes to the company's type law because and, and, our companies that came into effect in 2008, which mm. is now pretty, pretty old, and I think everyone is quite au fait with it, um, other than King 4, yeah, which, which is just a guideline yeah. that kind of dovetails with um, the Companies Act. And the, de- the death of CC, I think, is that next year, 2019? Yeah, so at the moment you can't register and you haven't been able to since the, the Companies Act Companies yeah. Act came into to being. You can't register a CC anymore. You can still operate it. And you, you can continue to operate a CC forever if you like. Um, you just can't register a new, new one. one. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's becoming less attractive to operate a, a CC because... CRPC doesn't deal well with CCs anymore. So if you're making changes, it's a longer process. It's more uh, red tape. There's more paperwork because they've got the process around PTYs absolutely slick now. And you can make changes and and update your company records fairly quickly. So it doesn't make any sense to stay a CC. It's also not detrimental not to. And if you're changing from a CC to PTY, would you then update your shareholders? You would, absolutely. Because as a a CC, you've got a a members agreement. You're regarded as members. And, you know, it's it's much better to to convert to a PTY limited where you've got more limited liability as as shareholders and, and directors. A CC, you're members of a of this legal entity, and you've got a little bit more liability than you do as a shareholder. And the old, um, before the the 
advent of the new Companies Act, it was very unattractive to have a PTY Limited because there was all these reports and uh, roles and responsibilities that you had auditing. to... Auditing. that you had to be audited. You had to... All sorts of things which are no longer applicable. So the, the attractiveness of a CC previously is no longer there because really? the, the, the simple version of a company is now in a PTY. There's no, okay. it, there's no compulsory reporting. There's no re, re, uh, compulsory auditing. There's nothing. It's no um, more complicated than having a CC. It's actually more simple. Okay, let's talk about dividends and, and declaring dividends. Uh, is that a stock standard clause that yes. you, would, you would generally add? Absolutely. And what we like to suggest to our clients is to consider things like you, we, we agree that there's going to be at least three months working capital in the business before a dividend can be declared. And then you don't declare possibly 100% of that amount over the three months working capital. You say, okay, so 70% of that will be declared as dividends and the 30% will be reinvested or um, kept for, for yeah, in the business. Yeah. It, it is a good idea to have a dividend policy in, though, because it can, there, there are often times where a dividend just never gets declared. So minority shareholders never really see the benefits. This is also happens quite frequently in um, BE arrangements. I was just about to say the BE they deals. Just, where the company will just never declare a dividend or a very small dividend that doesn't yield any benefit for, for the, uh, the parties that are... So some other questions is though. So I mean, I mean there's two things here. So the, the first thing is that there's obviously a lot of BE deals going through. Some are, are real equity deals and some are structures. Mm. But in terms of the real equity deals is that whether, whether the BE partners bought shares or gets given shares or regardless of how he acquires the shares... Um, I think to protect the BE partner, it's, it's crucial that they also have a say in terms of salary increase of the other shareholders who are actively involved in the business. Because as you say, what happens is that yeah. they don't declare dividends, they just start whacking bonuses through and mm. massive increases mm. to their salaries. Um, or padding the expenses. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Or figuring out other ways to take the money out of the business so we don't need to declare dividends, but we actually get the benefit of, of growing the business. Exactly. Um, is there any way of protecting minority shareholders or any shareholders from people just taking the piss out of, you know, yeah. what we just discussed? So absolutely. So we deal with that. Um, so the board of directors will generally decide on appointments, um, increases, bonuses to an agreed maximum amount. Anything over and above that, they need to get approval from the shareholders. And quite often what we have done is we've said that the board can't make any decisions around bonuses or increases or appointments. They need special resolution from the shareholders. And I think that just gives the shareholders, specifically if the shareholder isn't working in the business, mm. a little bit of control and insight into what happens with the finances. So the shareholders influence the, the, the way the board operates as well, yeah. quite, quite dramatically. I mean, in terms of some of the laws that obviously the shareholders agreement has in place, get rolled up into the, the board structure and, and the agenda and all the, the discussions. What about, about purchases of assets similarly? So not necessarily shareholders buying for their own value, but just saying, listen, I want to go buy a new car for the business or a new computer or anything. Are there, are there clauses in place that you can limit potentially the value of those purchases? So, absolutely, and there's a whole list of things that one should take cognizance of in the shareholders' agreement. So we like to do a schedule without giving away too many secrets, um, a schedule of things, of, of items that would need board approval and would need um, resolution or agreement over a certain amount. So there's actually quite a lengthy list of things and purchases over whatever, it depends what's relevant to your business, 100,000 Rand all need um, approval by 75%, for instance, or because that is a, a common thing to just run up the expenses um, for one person's benefit and not for the benefit of the, the company at, at, as a whole. What, what are the other like obvious clauses that you would you'd always stipulate people f sort of forget 
or don't think about? Um, I think a, a, an important one is you, you have to decide up front if all of the shareholders have to work in the business or if they don't. Um, and if you're wanting all the shareholders to actively work in the business, then it's important to think about a clause. Well, okay, if you resign or are fired or whatever um, as, as an employee, then you can't be a shareholder either, and it would cause a forced sale. Um, alternatively, on, on the back of that, you might want to agree that certain people will never work in the business, so they will never draw a salary. Um, but they will obviously take dividends. And if it's, if you have that situation, is it, it's exceptionally important to to agree on how the the, the auditing, the financials are, are structured and how the dividend poli- policy is formulated. Another topic that I heard mentioned at a TED talk we attended um, was where the party had sold majority of his shareholding in his business, but continued to work in the business, obviously, in some kind of a... It wasn't an earnout because I know that he'd been paid, but he definitely assumed some kind of executive role within the business. And what he had said was he had had the benefit of his wife being an attorney, and she had really bedded the agreement down for him and made sure that he was properly secure. And when he realized that the people that he was now engaged with in in the business weren't people that he wanted to continue with, he had the option of escaping the agreement, even though he was still in an employment period, because his wife had cleverly drafted it in. So I think that that is something to But I mean, I think that's a unique case, and I think that's obviously in a... Possibly in the sale agreement, not necessarily the shareholders. Yes, well, um, in the sale of shares or, uh, yeah. So, there are, we, can, we want to come back to tag and drag, yeah. but there are obviously, obviously different clawback agreements in terms of, you know, if we do sell shares and I don't like you, mm. within 12 months I can get them back, or your vesting period of when you put the, sh- when the shares sure. become, you You're know, quite yours. right, you should have been a lawyer. Um, no, I definitely shouldn't <laughs> have been. Um, oh, it's oh. the voice of reason. The voice of reason. So can I just ask an obvious question from my side? Um, There seems to be like so many different scenarios that could play out or eventualities Mm. that could play out. And if you view the shareholders' agreements as being your insurance policy and how decisions essentially get made or the governance structure around whatever the scenarios or event is in the business, how do you ensure that you prepare yourself or protect yourself from, or is it even possible to protect yourself from all the different types of things that could happen in a business? And if you can't, like, what's the the right process to adopt? Do you want to revisit, for instance, you know, every quarter, or is it? I'm going to phone Concilium now because this thing's happened, and we want to adjust adjust the shareholders' agreement. The only problem there is that that might cause problems in terms of the yeah. actual decision making of what's going on in the business. So how do you protect yourself? I mean, is this like to what extent can you actually protect yourself? Well, I think it's a combination of things, but I think what we like to to kind of guide our clients through in in a sort of legal strategy session is to say, okay, so let's think of situations where if this arose, you would absolutely not want to continue working together. And let's then unpack that. Because once you start unpacking those types of situations, it opens doors to a lot of other discussions. And from that, we can formulate um, kind of key clauses or key forced um, sale events where if the situation arises, you're going to split. You, one of you is going to sell or you're going to uh, liquidate the business. And I think that's the best way to kind of um, protect yourself is because you can't, we don't have, no one has a crystal ball. You just have, you, but you do know what will absolutely not work for you. So the, the point of departure there is to, before you actually sign or uh, a shales agreement is to sit with your legal team and actually mm. ideate and brainstorm all the different possible situations Absolutely. that yeah. could affect your business in the short term. That's why term. it shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all mm. 
agreement. Mm. And also because we've had the, the breadth of experience with dealing with different types of businesses, with different types of issues, we can often prompt you with things that you possibly haven't thought about. And then it opens a discussion. And sometimes, very unfortunately, we have also seen it where it stops right there, the partnership, because they realize that they're not mm. going to be compatible. But also I think there's got to be a fine line between like, you know, a 500-page shelves agreement because that alone can intimidate sure. you getting into business mm. together. So you want to make sure that you have the right lawyers in place like Concilium <laughs> to give you the right level of, of contract for the kind of business you are and potentially put in clauses that say, well, you know, if we under X revenue or X profitability, this agreement will be perfect. Maybe there's a trigger to say when we get to X staff or X revenue or X profit, we're going to relook at this agreement because maybe we need a thicker one at that point when the business has more value. So maybe just you know, building those sort of triggers into the, the initial agreement as well. Absolutely. Um, then just following on from the, the tag and drag question that you had earlier, um, we discussed the ta- tag along. With a drag along, it's, it's the complete converse to a tag. So a drag along is where I'm possibly a majority shareholder or there's myself and another shareholder who together own the majority shares of the business get an offer from a third party to buy a substantial portion of the business. So not just a substantial portion of our shares, but a substantial portion of the business. We can um, force the minority uh, shareholders to sell in that event. This is a very important clause. because This is, this is drag, right? This is drag along. Okay. And this is very important. A lot, of, a lot of agreements, shareholders' agreements, will leave it out. Because what this clause is, is stating is that if a particular offer arises... I will be forced to sell my shares in this business, i.e. I'm now leaving this business. And I may never want to do that. So it's it's not a clause we add into every shareholders agreement, but it can be very important if there is a number of shareholders and the majority shareholders or together a number of shareholders are the, the lifeblood of, of a business. And if they feel they want to sell, they should be able to. Okay, just a quick question. So we're obviously talking about shareholders agreements here for privately owned businesses, right? I mean, just explain to me from a high level, like a JSC listed business. So I own shares on the stock market. I'm in theory a shareholder, obviously a tiny, tiny percentage, but I have no rights as a shareholder. I don't, I've never signed a shareholder's agreement. What is the difference between a public and a private sort of company? So with a private company, you can operate the business as, as you like, obviously within the bounds of the law. And the shareholders have, together with the directors, have absolutely autonomy on how they run that business. With a listed company, it's publicly owned. So the shareholders don't have a say in how the business is run. However, you do have um, a number of very strict rights within the the Companies Act, which entitle you to certain information, like financials on the business. It gives you the option to sell and buy at any time. So you're not beholden... Mm. You can go to the AGM, but you're not beholden to the company. So you can kind of enter, dip in and dip out whenever you like. Whereas with a private company, you don't have that ability to yeah, dip in freedom. and dip out. So, look, I mean, ladies, I think for me what's, what's very important here is the fact that having agreements in place is essential. I've seen so many independently owned businesses, which are generally quite good, healthy businesses, um, just fall apart at the seams as soon as one partner is, is unhappy or wants to leave or there's a, a, a major catastrophe in the family or you know, often it's the, the partner's wife wants to immigrate or vice versa and it causes a lot of pain in the business. And what, what is a really good business suddenly deteriorates because of the, the lack of, of these sort of clauses up front um, and, and knowing how to get out successfully and how to get out with the least amount of pain and least amount of arbitration and mediation and all the other bits and pieces that often you know, happen, plus all those additional legal expenses. And people go, well, shareholders can be very expensive to produce up front, and I'm going, they're a fraction of the price versus paying lawyers you know, to litigate or down the line. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's a very, very mm. cheap investment up front versus the cost of 
dealing with the pain of, of bad partners or, or disgruntled partners in many years to come. So if you're in a legal pinch of your own and would like some practical and professional legal advice, check us out at conciliumlegal.co.za or drop us a line at info at conciliumlegal.co.za.